Before we uh, begin our study this morning, I'd like to read a letter that we uh, received, and it was written to all of us as the church here. Last December, uh, we got a phone call from a man who was in jail, and uh, Wayne Friedman and Chris Rudell went and visited him, and for the last six months, Chris in particular has been uh, going and working very closely with this man. This uh, fellow is a Christian. He was trying to live the Christian life all by himself, was not getting any support and fellowship from other people, and therefore, in a period of depression, fell back into uh, an unlawful type of behavior and became imprisoned. But Chris was a, in particular, was a great help to him, and he and he's written us, dear fellow Christians, many if not most of you have no idea who I am, but now you do. But yet your faith has touched my life. Your church and its leaders have become part of me. While I have never visited your church, I feel I am a part of it. Before meeting and receiving the help and support of your church leaders, I was the man who was ready to give up. I was sitting in jail with no hope and what looked like only one future, a life of imprisonment. I know God is the one who gave me new hope and a new future. But it is not all God's people who are willing to be used to help. Your leaders were. This is something I shall never forget. Please uh, accept my deepest and warmest thanks. I'm enclosing in these next few lines a poem which I feel says so much. If you have a tender message or a loving word to say, do not wait till you forget it, but whisper it today. The tender word unspoken, the letter never sent, the love forgot, the long forgotten message, the wealth of love unspent. For these, some hearts are breaking. For these, some loved ones wait to show them that you care for them before it is too late. The words of this poem, I believe, express in many ways what Christ meant when he commanded us to love one another. To your leaders, and most of all, Chris Riddell, my thanks. And to you, the people of God who chose these leaders, I shall always remember you in my prayers. May God bless, protect, and guide your church always. That's a real encouragement to us all to be able, at least indirectly, as we all are, to be a part of this. Chris worked with them and went, uh, helped counsel him through uh, uh, his sentencing and, and probation and, and arranged for him a probated sentence, uh, five-year term uh, under the uh, oversight of a Christian group in California. And he was so thankful, he said, that he was at the bottom of his uh, rope and he was about to give up hope and uh, forget God and, and just live a life of self-pity and hopelessness in prison and uh, probably continue in his crime when he got out. But he really feels he's turned around now, so we'd like to praise the Lord for that and also continue to pray for him. I had a friend in college named Jim Austin with whom I spoke about Jesus Christ a few times. Jim told me that he had grown up in a church-going family. But that when he was in high school, he examined his own religious belief. He said that at that point, he thoroughly examined religion and found convincing evidence for for the existence of God to be lacking. And therefore, naturally, he was an atheist. Now, what are we to make of people like Jim Austin? What are we to make of those who say they have searched and sought out? And the evidence is just not there. 
This morning we want to look at a passage, Matthew chapter 12, that is very instructive and helpful to us in understanding such people. The passage consists of three stories, verses 22 to 37, 38 to 45, and 46 to 50, all of which deal with the subject of opposition to Christ or rejection of Him. Now, if we imbibe in the humanistic philosophy that people are all basically good and basically seekers after truth, then encountering a person like Jim can be very disconcerting. Because if people are all good and truth seekers, then why is it that he couldn't find? He said that he seriously and sincerely sought. And if the evidence is so inadequate for a belief in God in general, for a belief in Christianity in particular, then it must be that our faith rests on very shaky foundations. Well, this passage tells us a lot about the nature of opposition. And we'll see that it comes not from a lack of evidence, but from a moral choice of the heart. The incident that touched off the opposition in the first story is related in verses 22 and 23. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And Jesus healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? They were astonished as they saw Jesus' powers. They saw saw him cast the demon out of this man, and the one who was once blind and dumb now saw and spoke. And they began questioning. This man can't be the messianic son of David, can he? Well, he doesn't fulfill the Old Testament predictions of a king and a deliverer. And yet he is a remarkable man. And God's power does seem to rest upon him enabling him to perform these kind of miracles. Well, such questions were too much for the Pharisees. So they responded in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees were threatened by Jesus Christ. They had built their lives and had attained a certain status, studying the law, studying the rulings and teachings of various rabbis, working hard to keep all of these and master the content of them. And they had had attained a great position as religious leaders of of the country, a position of great status and great power. And now Jesus, a poor, itinerant, unemployed, uneducated uh, carpenter's son was now challenging them and their leadership in the country. To acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah would mean a total undoing of all that they had attained. It would mean that they would have to relinquish the status and power that they had earned and they would no longer be the religious leaders. And they were very threatened by that thought. And therefore they said to the people, No, he's not the Messiah. 
He's just an evil man who casts out demons only by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. They were desperate men, grasping at straws, trying to dissuade the people from following Jesus, putting their faith in Him. But Jesus responds, And knowing their thoughts, He said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? He says your charges are illogical. That's about as, as much sense as, as supposing that a general going out to battle would begin his battle by slaughtering half of his troops on the way out to, uh, to conflict. No, a house divided against itself won't stand. Satan wouldn't be that dumb to send out his messenger to go around casting demons out of people. He says, furthermore, verse 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. In other words, if you're charging me with performing acts of exorcism by the power of Satan, you are implicating your own children your own sons, who some of whom are also doing the same sort of activity. And if you're implicating them, then they are standing as your judges because you are tolerating their behavior. So if you accuse me, you end up accusing yourselves. He said you're just being illogical. No, you should have concluded differently. He said, if, uh, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For how can anyone enter the, the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder him? You should have concluded not that I was in cahoots with Satan, but that I had overpowered him. Now he's not saying in verse 29 that he had totally rendered inoperative uh, Satan at this point in his ministry. That will come later. He's using this just to illustrate that he has overpowered him. He has gained control and he's freed people from the dominion of Satan by the power of God because he is God's representative bringing the kingdom of God to the earth and people's lives. Now, this story is very helpful to us in providing for us insights into the nature and the reason of the rejection of many people. The Pharisees rejected Jesus Christ not because a lack of evidence. Unfortunately for them, the evidence was all too clear. Jesus had cast a demon out of this man, and everybody could see him uh, speak and see. As with all of Jesus' miracles, they never questioned that the miracle happened. The evidence was too obvious. All they could do was to attribute the cause of it to something else. No, they didn't reject Jesus for lack of evidence. They rejected Him because they were threatened. They wanted to be the bosses of their own lives. They wanted to control themselves. They didn't want anybody, not even God, telling them what to do. Many people today are the same way. They're threatened by Christ, and so as the Pharisees did, so do they come up with illogical, 
what are often illogical and, and shallow arguments to really rationalizations of their own unbelief. People are threatened because they're afraid that God might make them religious bores, take all the life and the zest out of, uh, out of life. Some people view God as, as being an old fuddy-duddy and think that God searched through and figured out what are the ten most fun things to do in life and then wrote them down. These are the first ten things I'm going to forbid. But God's not like that. His rules and regulations are there because He knows how we operate. He knows what is going to make life, not rob us of life. But even when people understand, they still are threatened because they want to hang on. Some people have certain something in particular that they want to hang on to. An illicit relationship, an ethical business practice, a drug habit, whatever it is. Others, it's something that's more... Uh, it's uh, uh, less definable. Materialism. Just plain old self-centeredness and pride. People want to keep God at arm's length and rule their own lives, and so they come up with various excuses. One excuse for unbelief that I'm sure you've heard, I have, is I can't become a Christian because and believe all this stuff because I know so-and-so is a Christian and he's a hypocrite. I have a friend who kept God off for a number of years because he said all the Christians I know, the people who say the same things you're saying, are racial bigots. And I can't believe that Christianity is true in light of those people. Well, that might sound good on the surface, but that's about as logical as saying, I can't believe in the principle of the internal combustion engine because my car doesn't work. Simply because one thing doesn't work doesn't make uh, render invalid the whole uh, the whole theory or uh, philosophy. Sure, they're hypocritical Christians, but they're hypocritical Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and Muslims. One's hypocrisy doesn't mean what he believes is right or wrong. You have to judge that in other grounds. Other people use as an excuse for their unbelief science. They claim. Science has disproven religion. Why science has proved to us that miracles can't happen. But science deals with testable, observable data. Science can tell us what normally does happen, but it can't tell us what the, whether miracles can or cannot happen. That's beyond its realm. Others claim, but science has proved to us that, that man wasn't created like God said in the Bible, like the Bible says God said. Rather, science has proved to us that man has just evolved by the, the chance uh, coming together of amino acids and, and the evolution over four and a half billion years through chance processes of mutation and natural selection. And yet, true science cannot dogmatize on the origins of life. That's not an observable, testable uh, uh, type of uh, a field of inquiry. Let me read a, an interesting quotation to you that I ran across recently. Karl Popper, whom Sir Peter Medawar described in a BBC broadcast as incomparably the greatest philosopher of science that has ever been, says this in one of his books. Darwinism is not a testable scientific theory. 
but a metaphysical research program. In other words, Popper, who is not a, a, a believer in God, Popper is merely a, a philosopher of science, he says the evolutionary theory, Darwinism, is not uh, a scientific fact. It's merely a theory. And a theory can't prove or disprove anything. It's not really even scientific. It's just a, a metaphysical philosophy. It's an explanation, if you want an alternative to God, as to how we all start. But it's, it's certainly not anything that's been proven. But there are many other excuses that, that people come up with for unbelief. I think one of the things that's been most encouraging to my faith was reading the book, Why I Am Not a Christian, by Bertrand Russell. Now, that may seem strange as a means of encouraging my faith, and yet it really was. Bertrand Russell was, was uh, one of the brilliant men of this century, was a, uh, a tremendous uh, genius, mathematician, a brilliant philosopher. And yet when I read his book and saw the childish, silly arguments that he came up with, my faith was encouraged to, to think, here, this brilliant man, and if he can come up with nothing better than this, then by default, Christianity has to rest on very strong uh, ground. For instance, one of the arguments he gives is that Jesus Christ could not have been the best man who ever lived because he taught about things like hell and the unforgivable sin. And worries about these have tormented thousands of people throughout the centuries. Therefore, Russell argues, for one to teach these things which causes torment to people must mean that the one who teaches these things has some sort of moral defect. Follow his line of argument? That's about as logical as saying that the Surgeon General of the United States of America is immoral for causing people worry by warning them that cigarette smoking may be dangerous to their health. That's the best he could come up with in his arguments against Christianity. People reject it, not because of the evidence, but because they're threatened. And they want to come up with an excuse for their opposition. Verses 30 to 37, Jesus delves further, and he analyzes further the root of their rejection. He says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. He begins in verse 30 in saying there's no such thing 
as religious neutralism. Now, secular humanism might tell us that certain people are neutral. We might save a person while he's not for God, he's not fighting for truth, and at least he's not against God. But Jesus says such is not the case. Either you're for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. Either you are gathering with me, helping to build the kingdom of God and people's lives on this earth, or else you're scattering. You are hindering God's work. You may be hindering it very openly as Madeline Murray O'Hare and people like that, or it may be more subtle. You may simply be communicating to people by your life that God doesn't really matter. You may be conveying to them the false impression that one can build a successful, happy, fulfilling life apart from a vital relationship with God. The Pharisees, he says, were against him. They were against him, and he warns them in verses 31 and 32 that they were in danger of eternal perdition. Now, verses 31 and 32 constitute a warning, not a pronouncement of condemnation. He was appealing to them. He says to them, You are rejecting me, God's representative, and you are in danger of committing an unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, many people have worried, maybe I have committed the unforgivable sin because of some awful thing that they have done. The unforgivable sin is not the slip of a moment. It's not using the Holy Spirit's name in vain. It's not calling the Holy Spirit a, a dirty word. Jesus says that you can curse me, you can blaspheme me against the Son of Man and be forgiven. Paul the Apostle cursed Christ, tried to destroy the church, and yet he was turned around and came to a point of total forgiveness. What Jesus is talking about the Pharisees were now seeing undeniable proof of the Messiahship of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in his life and the works that he was doing. What is unforgivable is turning off the witness of the Spirit externally and internally. It's unforgivable not because God gets ticked off and he won't forgive you if you do that, but it's unforgivable because forgiveness only comes through Jesus Christ, putting our faith in Him. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is hardening our hearts to the witness of that Spirit to us about the truth of Jesus Christ. And he says to the Pharisees, you are very close to committing this sin. And then he continues in verses 33 to 37, to show that he's not talking about a mere slip of the tongue. He says you have a choice. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. It's known by its fruits. The Pharisees had been cursing Christ and accusing him of operating under the power of the devil. And he says that, that those, though those accusations themselves are forgivable, they're very dangerous. And the root of them is an evil heart. How can you, Pharisees, speak anything but evil when your hearts are evil? And that, he says, is the real cause of their rejection of him. 
What they need is not simply to watch out and make sure they don't say a few special words that would bring condemnation upon them. What they need is radical heart surgery for God to turn them around and make their hearts new. Such a uh, revelation of the heart are one's words that Jesus says in 36 and 37, I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your word you shall be justified, and by your word you shall be condemned. To justify means to pronounce righteous. Now, if you have a New American Standard, notice in the margin that it says, for the word by, it says, or in accordance with. I think that's a better translation here. Because it's not really by our words we're justified, but it's in accordance with them. We are justified or pronounced righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross pay the penalty for our sins. But our words show our heart. And if our heart has been made new by faith in Christ, then our words will show it and we'll be justified in accordance with whatever words we have, the good or the bad. The Pharisees, he's saying, are rejecting him because they have evil hearts. They need to be turned around. The Pharisees respond to this in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And notice it says they answered him. They're not asking him. They're not saying, Lord, would you please show us a sign? We'd really like to believe this, but just one more sign would really help out. They're answering him. He has accused them of being in cahoots with Satan, of resisting God. And their answer is, who do you think you are to accuse us? Prove to us that you're the Son of God. Give us some undeniable evidence. Show us a sign. Jesus responds, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign right now, just as you demand. Nevertheless, an undisputable sign will be given to you. The sign of the resurrection. And throughout the book of Acts, we see that the apostles come back again and again to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the ultimate sign, the ultimate evidence, the ultimate foundation and basis for our faith. Paul refers to it in Acts 17 as God's giving proof to all men through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Pharisees had seen Jesus cast out demons, perform miracles of healing, but that wasn't enough for them. They wanted something more. Jesus says, because you're evil and adulterous, not adulterous in terms of human relationships, but adulterous in terms of turning away and and uh, playing the harlot in your relationship with God because of that, that you crave this kind of sign. And it's not going to be given to you now, though later God will give you an undeniable sign. But he says that 
you have enough proof right now in my person to make a decision. And in the judgment day, he said, two groups of people are going to come up and and condemn you. Verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation of the judgment and shall condemn it because they re- uh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He says that the men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this generation because Jonah came and preached to them. He didn't perform miracles. He didn't give any signs. And yet through the moral force of his preaching, the people knew in their hearts that they were wrong. And the Ninevites repented. And Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. He's pinpointing what he makes more explicit elsewhere in John 17.7. There he says, If any man is willing to do God's will, he will know of this teaching of mine, whether it's from God or from mere man. In other words, the reason for rejection of Christ is not a lack of the evidence. It's not that the evidence is too ambiguous. The real reason is that people do not want to do God's will. They want to run their own lives They want to be their own bosses. It's a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. And he says the the men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and one greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will also rise up and judge this generation. And in particular, she'll judge all those who are indifferent. Now, can you imagine somebody living at the foot of Mount St. Helens being warned of the possibility of another volcanic explosion and saying, well, it may happen, it may not, who cares? I live for the present, you know. I don't really care about what may or may not happen in the future. I don't really feel a need to move. We would say that such a person is a fool. And yet people make the same response when we talk to them about God. They say, well, I don't really feel a need for God. We say, yes, but there may be a judge, there is a judgment day coming. That's what, what, uh, Jesus says. Well, I don't really care too much about the future. I'm enjoying the present. I don't, uh, I want to live for right now. The Queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn all such people because she traveled for hundreds of miles to hear Solomon and his wisdom, find out truth about God. And she'll be a condemnation to all those who want to remain indifferent, who won't even investigate the facts, who say, I don't, I don't really care to bother with it. I don't feel needful right now. She will judge them. Because a greater than Solomon is here, Jesus says. Verses 43 to 45, Jesus gives an illustration. One that's a little bit difficult as we first look at it, not to understand so much the main points, but how it fits with what precedes. Let's read it and see if we can put it together. 
Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus is saying, is explaining the underlying causes of their rejection by this illustration. He says, you, the nation of Israel and its leaders, are like a man who has been freed from an unclean spirit. Through the discipline of the Babylonian exile, the nation of Israel had been freed from idolatry and from the many grosser, many of the grosser practices of paganism, such as their uh, religious prostitution and child sacrifices and bestiality and all these things. And yet they were like the man who has been freed from this, but inside he is morally destitute. The demon has left, the unclean spirit, but nothing has taken its place. Therefore, they were clean looking on the outside. They had an appearance of righteousness, and yet they were empty on the inside. The Spirit of God had not taken the place of that unclean spirit. And therefore, they, because they felt they were righteous, they were deceived, and the last state would be worse than the first. They would end up worse off than they had been during the, their days of idolatry in Jeremiah's time. And because of their self-deceived feelings of self-righteousness, the Pharisees thought that they could stand in judgment of Jesus Christ. They felt that they didn't need Him. They were offended that He could think that He could point His finger at, at them. The same way today, many people respond to Jesus Christ. They are offended at the cross of Christ because the message of the cross tells them that we human beings are sinners deserving of eternal punishment for our disobedience and rebellion against God. And that's an offense to those people. It's an offense to tell them that all of our good works can do absolutely nothing to contribute to our salvation, to our being accepted by God. Oh, it's okay to believe in Jesus as long as that belief in Jesus is seen as one of many religious works that I do. I believe in, I'll believe in Jesus and give to the United Fund and be a nice guy and do this and that. And through all these, I will earn God's acceptance. Well, such people, though they may even feel that they're following Christ or opposing Him and His message, just as the Pharisees were, because they're deceived by their own feelings of righteousness, understanding of their own righteousness. The next story, in verses 46 to, 40, to 50, is a story dealing with the family of Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us that while he was still speaking to the multitudes... In the story above, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. 
And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my mother and sister and brother. In this story, we learn something further about the about opposition to Christ and reasons for rejection. Notice that Jesus makes a contrast between his physical mother and his brothers and his disciples who are sitting by him, listening to him, seeking to find God's will. Though they were physically his mother and brothers, they were not submitting to God's will. They were not his disciples. Mark makes the contrast more plain, the reasons for coming to him more plain. Let me read to you Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Mark tells us right before the incident of the Pharisees accusing Jesus of of casting out demons by Beelzebul, he says this, And Jesus came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they said he has lost his senses. They sincerely wanted to help Jesus. Here they saw that Mary saw her son and the brothers that their big brother was going crazy. He let religion go to his head. He was becoming fanatical. And so they needed to take custody of him, take charge of his affairs, make sure that he got enough sleep and rest and, and uh, enough food. Why, he was getting so fanatical that maybe he'd even start a cult. They needed to take him into isolation and deprogram him. So after all, religion's okay as long as you don't get carried away, become fanatical. And so they sincerely wanted to help him. They were sincere in wanting to help, but they were uninformed. They were spiritually ignorant. They were misunderstanding. And they were probably embarrassed also that their family was being laughed at because of the fanaticism of Jesus. We learn from this that people, though they appear to be nice and sincere and wanting to offer advice and help, may be because of their lack of spiritual discernment, even opposing the work of God. Remember a conversation I had when I was in college with uh, parents of an old high school buddy. We used to be, their son and I used to be real practical jokesters together. And I became a Christian in, in high school and in college in particular. My thoughts and activities were more directed towards my relationship with Christ instead of uh, uh, pulling jokes on other people. And they took me aside one time and said, Steve, you used to have such fun in life. Now you're just getting too serious. You need to loosen up and enjoy life a bit. And they were very sincere and and from their viewpoint wanted to help me. And yet translated into different terms what they were really saying came down to don't take your relationship with God so seriously. You're getting too religious. And religious fanaticism is, is not where it's at. 
And though they were trying to help then, they're, what they were really doing was opposing the work of God in my life and through my life, though they didn't realize it. We learn then from this passage that opposition to Christ comes, rejection of Him, not because of lack of evidence, but because people are threatened by Jesus Christ. They want to be bosses of their own lives. They want to because they have an evil heart. They don't want what God wants for them. They reject Christ so they may look good on the outside as the Pharisees did. They may be sincere and and nice people wanting to help as Jesus' family was. But because they're not willing to submit to God and do His will. We learn here that man is not basically good and a truth seeker. Man is twisted and perverted. He's fallen. He has an inclination towards selfishness, towards defensiveness, towards being self-seeking and wanting to be independent and run his own life. And therefore, we need to understand man. All of our evangelistic efforts need to be bathed in prayer because we might memorize all the right words to say and have all the right arguments, but it's God alone who can change people's hearts. We who are already Christians need to realize that we too have this twist and this pull towards sin still resident within us. And that apart from our daily dependence upon God in a radical way, every moment, every hour, we too are going to slip in to rebellion against God. Maybe in ways that are perfectly acceptable to everybody around us and appear good. And yet we too can find that we are opposing Jesus Christ in our own lives. My life for us to close today by praying and asking God to show us if there's any way in which any of us is opposing His Lordship. Now, there's some who may not be Christians here. You're still searching, still checking things out. And it may be this point that God is going to say to you, well, the real reason is because you don't want to give up control of this part of your life. Those of us who are Christians may have, uh, most of us probably have, areas of our lives that we're holding away from God. We want Him to show us so that we can give those up to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the insights into human nature that You give us through this passage. Lord, we need Your help. We know that apart from Your grace and Your power, we too will turn from You. We'll rebel and want to claim control of our own lives and run our own destiny. Show us, Lord, where we're trying to do this. Maybe an attitude that's wrong. Maybe we're resentful towards You for our circumstances or resentful towards somebody else and unforgiving. Maybe we're just self-centered and think that our own entertainment and enjoyment and comfort is the most important thing in life rather than serving You and others. Lord, whatever it is, show us that we might give ourselves up to You fully. We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.